0: This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. What exactly is leadership and what does it mean to be a leader? Leadership is thrust upon those who, through strength of conviction and moral character, lead through personal experience. Leadership is our topic today and we have someone special on today's episode who is uniquely equipped to discuss it with us. Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking about leadership. But we're going to cover it briefly from the 30,000-foot perspective. But then we're going to zoom in on the experiences and lessons learned throughout an unimaginably successful career of today's guest. Someone whose track record suggests that she will have a far better chance of understanding what leadership means and looks like to help you with your own career. Barbara Hewlett serves as Senior Vice President at Fortive with roles leading advanced sterilization products and Invitech. She also oversees Fortive's information technology, data analytics related to their innovation incubator known as the Fort, and Fortive's work in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Barbara originally joined Fortive as president of Fluke in 2005, but was appointed Danaher Group Executive and Corporate Officer three years later. Since 2013, She has held roles of increasing scope as Senior Vice President with company-wide responsibility for the Ford Business System Office, Procurement, IT, High Growth Markets, and Innovation. Barbara serves on the board of the Pacific Science Center and the Dean's Advisory Council of the Kellogg Graduate School of Management. Named one of the top women in STEM for her role in establishing the Washington STEM Center. She is passionate about driving STEM education from an early age particularly for girls. She earned her MBA in marketing from the University of Texas at Austin and her MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern. While all of this is certainly impressive, she really developed and honed in on her leadership skills during her formative childhood years in her role as my slightly older sister. Hi, Barb, or should I call you Barbara since we're having a professional conversation.
1: Can I say either one would be better than what you called me as a child. So we can go with whatever you want. Oh,
0: now people are going to want to know nice. what I called you.
1: <laughs> well, it's going to open up the door for you. Too. No, that's
0: right. I can, I'm not saying it because then you'll say, well, that's because we called him this and I don't want people to know that. <laughs> oh,
2: I'm going to try to get to it. Don't worry.
0: It's not happening. Hers is worse because she's got a last name. I've just got a first name that I didn't like. She's got a first name and a last name because we had to shush it up make it even worse
1: you can see how this is going down it's already
0: terrible we this is already a bad idea (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay so we're here to talk about leadership and i'll start by asking you what seems to me the obvious first question what does leadership mean to you
1: you know i think about this question a lot because it's overused Uh, Somebody was talking the other day about the kids in school and how everybody's supposed to be a leader. But, of course, if everybody's leading, nobody's following, right? So, like, that doesn't even work. I think one of the most important things leadership means is a change in trajectory. So think about it this way. If the world just went on the way the world goes on and there were no changes implemented, think of it as a glide path or however you want to call it. You don't need leaders because things will naturally evolve to the way that they're supposed to be, you know. As an example, water will run downhill. If you need water to run downhill, you don't need somebody to lead it that way. It will happen. So a big part about leadership is changing the trajectory. Your listeners may not know how musically inclined you were as a child.
0: Pretty sure I've said something about it.
1: (laughs) Okay, well. I might have mentioned
0: it a a time or two.
1: Did you ever play your instrument for them on the podcast?
0: No, no way. That would never happen.
1: (laughs) That's probably a good thing. But you can think about the conductor, right? And so if you think about orchestras around the world, take the Berlin Philharmonic, which is one of the best orchestras known to man. And it is staffed with incredible, incredible virtuosos of every type across every instrument. If you ask them to sit down and play a piece that they all know and have played before, they'll play it beautifully. It'll be great. But they can only play it one way. And if you start to think about changes you want to have within that music Within the composition, within the expression, you need somebody that's sitting on that box or standing on that box as a conductor to say a little bit slower here, a little bit faster there, a little bit louder, a little bit softer. And that's where the magic comes in because they can, on a perfunctory basis, play the music and play it technically quite well. But when your ears listen to it, it would be quite different. And so leadership to me is akin to the conductor standing on the box who has to change the trajectory of what would have happened in its normal course. And that's what leading is.
0: It's a good example.
2: Yeah, that is actually one I've never
0: heard before. You know, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, especially since I'm so musically inclined, I mean, I I could see where you were going as soon as you started.
1: (laughs) I wanted to make it something you could relate to. Yeah,
0: something I could understand, I appreciate that. So let me ask you this. How does someone become a leader? Is it something you can train for or is it about harnessing natural talents and abilities?
1: I think it's a combination of uh, a lot of different things. There are some people that aren't cut out to be leaders. They don't find energy from it. They don't find joy or passion for it. And there are many ways to be successful in life not being a leader. And I go back to the example of all the kids in school trying to prove that they're leaders is kind of crazy because our society needs to work where some people are actually following. Now, that said, I think there are some natural characteristics that some people have that get honed over time. We do a lot of leadership development at work, and you can think about it as when you're a new frontline leader, what do you need to be successful in managing people for the first time? Most people, when they're leading or managing for the first time, make the mistake of managing everybody the way they wish they had been managed or led, and that's not the best course either. Me and others spend an inordinate amount of time and money on leadership development But the most important piece of that is what I'll call on the job training, which is just got to do it. You got to do things, you got to experience it, you've got to learn, you've got to try, you've got to fail, you've got to iterate, you've got to try again, and you learn over time. And some people aren't cut out for that. And I think you can look at the people around you, and uh, we all know them. You can reflect back on people you thought were great leaders and people you thought were sorry. (laughs) Sometimes they call it the Peter Principle, people that got never promoted for the roles. Sometimes they're just bad leaders, period. You know, so I don't think this is a God-given right that everybody climbs out of the womb and says, I've got the potential to be something great here. We're all wired differently and we need a different set of skills. And for some, it's quite natural. And for others, it takes a lot of work and they never get there.
0: So let me ask you this, and Andrew, maybe you feel differently about this, but even when I watch Michelle, my wife, you know, she works at Southwest Airlines. They do a lot of executive training, leadership training. It's like, it's nonstop. And very rarely do I hear of, or at least that I see the extent of what you were kind of mentioning and what I see with Michelle, that sort of training in architectural firms. It doesn't seem to happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying I don't seem to see it very often. And I know in my last office, you know, one of the partners there, he, now he would preface this by saying, we're not great at this. Like, this is not something we're good at. But there was a certain amount of pride that he would say when we treat people the way we wanted to be treated. And in our case, when we had a very small office, and was full of alpha personalities. We were really good at just saying, we want to be, what I think it's the Dwight Eisenhower had a quote, like, don't tell people how to do something, tell them where to go and let them surprise you on how they Mm -hmm. solve that problem. So we would just tell people what we wanted and then give them the opportunity to figure out how best to go about it. And that was ingested and regurgitated as, well, that's what we want. So we want people who are like us and therefore that's how we treat them. Is how we would treat them. And it worked okay, but obviously our office was sort of stagnant. We kind of had like a growth level that was maxed out that was kind of based on the force of the personalities of leadership. And I I wonder sometimes that when you're working for a big firm, you have to continually grow and evolve people into leadership positions. And so I would imagine you have to invest in them early enough to see, I think Andrew had this question early on, or I don't know if we made it on the list or not, but it was the idea that when you look for someone, do you go, they look like they have leadership potential. How do we nurture it? How do we create it? How do we evolve this person into the person that we think? Is that something that you guys deal with often at Fordive?
1: Yeah, all the time. I think the magic is in figuring out that even the same person in different situations has to be led differently. By the way, one of the things we figured out, and I hope this is not the case for all of education, but the way adults learn, they learn by doing. And so these classroom Training kinds of things, maybe 10% of the game. And maybe at some point in time, we'll talk about coaching or mentoring. That might be another 20%. But the big gains to be had developmentally are from on the job training, where, of course, you're getting feedback and being able to try different things. There's a model that we talk about a lot called situational leadership that I like a lot because it says any given person at any given point in time in the career will need something different from their boss or their leader. And it has to do with how well equipped that person is to do the job. Do they know what it is? Have they done it before? Do they have competency, capability? Have they successfully shown it? And then it has to do as well with kind of their aspirations and what they're trying to do. So you can imagine as an example, if you've got somebody that's working for you, they're a great person, but they've never tried something before, then you need to be more coaching in the way that you'll try to help get the best out of somebody. Because in some ways what leaders are trying to do is help people realize potential. It's all about unlocking that potential that you talked about. There are other times where you say the person's been there, done that, If you're trying to coach them on it, you're going to be in the way, get out, you know, and that's where you say, just delegate it. They know what they need to do, be clear on on what the expectations are, and then get out of the way. And so the situational leadership model is very helpful in figuring out, is this something that somebody already knows how to do and I I should be able to just hand it off, or is this something that's different and they need coaching, or perhaps they need more supporting leadership and more directing leadership. And it's important to know that it's not to a person. It could be a person in a task. Does that make sense to you? Because it's it's a different model.
0: No, no, that makes perfect sense. I think that as I've moved from smaller firm to a larger firm, I'm starting to see evidence of the one size doesn't fit all mentality and how you as a person in leadership, part of my goal is to identify strengths and weaknesses and put people in a position that allows them to blossom under the right kind of light and not put them in a position to where they're going to be exposed in areas that they're deficient or they need additional help in.
1: Because you want people to be successful ultimately.
2: Of course. One of the other things I would say about that, in our profession, I would say that I don't think that until you get to be a really large firm, you actually think about the firm living beyond you. Whereas in the business corporate culture, they want that business to last forever and ever and ever. But in our realm of creative practice, we don't always envision things going beyond our lifetime. We think, well, the firm's going to die with me. And that's just how Mm. it goes. But in business culture, it's a little bit different. So sometimes I wonder that's why we don't see leadership training in small to medium-sized firms is because the expectation of this going on beyond me doesn't really come into play all that often.
1: You know what's interesting about that to me is you can think about the importance of feedback in any kind of development, if it's a formalized program or an informalized program. We sometimes say that feedback is a gift because it's hard Uh, sometimes to give and it's hard to receive. And you think about a small office dynamic where people are working collaboratively. It can sometimes be hard to give feedback. I think about some of the best mentors I've had. One of them used to say, I'm going to get out my two by four and whack you with it, which is maybe in a day Uh, gone by. It's a little little aggressive. (laughs) My childhood. Yeah, it reminds me of my childhood a little bit, but Well, you just think about it this way, and I say this to my son Eddie all the time in basketball, which is when the coaches stop being on you, they've given up on you. And as long as they're pushing you and you've given your feedback, and sometimes it's hard to hear, you know, you know that somebody's invested in you and trying to make you get better. And I think in a small firm, and I've worked in some big places and small places, it's hard in small places to be really blunt and transparent in feedback because of the working dynamics. So part of what we try to do is make sure that we've got performance feedback mechanisms where You can help people understand what they need to develop based on the kinds of careers they're trying to grow and make sure that you've got the right feedback mechanisms because oftentimes people will figure out how to correct. You know, I always say nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll go to work today and do a lousy job. That's my goal today. I want to really suck, (laughs)
0: you know? Hopefully not.
1: I don't think the world works that way and people are wired that way. You know, even for people that aren't as career minded, you have pride in what you do and you want to go make sure that your time at work was well spent and you got something done. And so if you start with that as a place to leverage from, then how do you give people the feedback and the coaching, and the mentorship to make them better? Well, let me throw this back out at you. I'm going to collide
0: two things you put together. One thing you were talking about the coach when they stopped kind of getting on you, it's because they've given up. There's some apathy at some point, right? Like they look at it and they go, my resources are not well spent on this individual because they're never going to get it. They can't do what I need them to do. So I'm not going to waste my time on that person. I do think there are people that wake up in the morning and while they don't say, I'm going to go do a bad job, they are apathetic about their job. Mm-hmm. And they go into it. And I do think there are people who consciously do like the least amount possible to keep them off the radar both positively and negatively so that they can just kind of cruise through and honestly I'm telling you it's one of the things that drives me the craziest about I mean I'd rather you be tremendously terrible at something you put your heart into than just mediocre because you couldn't care enough to actually do what you're capable of and I know that I'm starting to sound like dad (laughs) the idea that I know you're capable of so much more and the disappointment comes from you not living up to your abilities, then.
1: Is that what you got from him? He never said that to me. I'm
0: reading between the lines here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. But so it's like,
0: so what we really try to do, or at least what I try to do and my role is to, to try to identify the people that want to be better. Like they want to grow. And I used to say this all the time, like, And the example I used to give was when people were writing on their resumes, like their objectives. I don't know if people still do this anymore. I don't see it very often, but it used to be, my objective is to get a job in a design oriented firm where I can grow and develop my design skills and blah, blah, blah. And I always thought that's ridiculous. Cause basically what you said is I want to get a cool job, right? Like, I mean, who doesn't want what you just described? Like that doesn't tell me anything. Mm -hmm. And so off the top of my head, I went, I'd be much more impressed if somebody said, I want to give a job that gives me the opportunities where I can earn the respect of my peers. And I go, that talks about motivation. That tells you more about that individual than somebody else saying, I want to get a job in this type of firm that does the kind of work that I want to do. That's a throwaway kind of comment. I get nothing from it. And I do think that if you're in a leadership position, if you can try to find the things that people are passionate about and then let them have ownership of those things, that's when you need to get out of the way for those folks because then they'll, they'll take off.
1: There's a whole topic that's getting more and more important here as we're talking about the topic of how do you help people realize their potential. Yeah. And it goes under the headline of engagement. And a lot of research that's been done around people who are engaged at work will perform better and ultimately the place where they work performs better because they're putting their discretionary effort towards whatever the goal is. I remember a great story where they talked about well, you were telling me about DMV the other day because Kate went to go get a driver's license. Right. You think about the level of customer service that exists at the DMV. Would you be surprised if I told you that the average DMV worker was paid about a third higher than almost any place else you can think about in a similar position? I would be surprised by that, yeah. But it's true. And what's, what's interesting there is I think the DMV does a really terrible job of getting people engaged. You know, or maybe they maybe they're able to recruit for some folks that wake up in the morning and aren't aren't that motivated. But going back to the topic of leadership and realizing potential, I mean, part of what you got to do is figure out how do you get that discretionary effort. How do you make sure that people are engaged? At Ford, we do a lot of work every year with engagement surveys, where we survey twenty six thousand people around the world and get all kinds of feedback around the job that we're doing relative to engagement, and we hold our managers accountable to driving imp- improvement around engagement scores and you can start to see what drives engagement and where the weak spots are and where you as a company and you as a manager uh, need to do better things because ultimately you want to know if a customer calls at 459 and needs help that somebody's going to stick around and help them but they don't say ah, it's almost five o'clock it's quitting time I'll get it tomorrow You know, because you can't build a business that you want to build and take care of customers the way you want to take care of them if people are already putting on their code at 459. Yeah.
0: I want to shift our conversation just a little bit. We're still sticking on the topic of leadership, but when I let a couple people know that you were joining us, and you and I have had this conversation about a dozen times offline over the last 20 years, and it had to do with the fact that you've done very well for yourself in a lot of the roles and positions you've held you've mentioned to me, like you'll walk into a board meeting somewhere on the other side of the world and you're the only woman sitting at the table. Yep. And so when I let people know that I, I said, Hey, if you have any questions that you want me to specifically drill down and find out, send them to me. And I got avalanched. I mean, all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, Oh my God, there was so many.
1: Finally, you're asking them about something they're interested in. huh?
0: Well, You know, the thing is, is so the field of architecture has been very male dominated for a long time. And that's starting to change. Mm -hmm. I want to say, I think I probably had, I mean, single digit graduates in my class from UT that were female when I came out of it. That's shocking. Yeah. But that's not what it is now. The majority of them, a higher percentage are women than men now. So it's definitely changing. But The current level of the C-suite in large architectural offices, which uh, which I'll focus on because small is kind of personality driven Mm -hmm. and larger firms kind of have like a corporate culture structure in place. So a lot of them are kind of curious, like when you look at the C suite level in large firms, there's still not a lot of women represented. And we'll say, well, it represents the percentage of men to women. So if if there's a hundred architects and 90 of them are men and 10 are women it would stand to reason that nine executives are men and one executive is female. I don't necessarily, if I buy into that kind of binary logic, but I gave people the opportunity to ask me questions. And so we have some of those that are specific to being an executive and at your level that are specific to you being a woman. Oh, that was Mm gross. That was gross to say my sister. woman. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So if that's okay, let's, can we jump into that? Yeah, of course. Okay.
2: So then that means it's my turn to start with the first question here. So how has being a woman impacted your career, either positively or negatively?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because often the story that's never told is the good side of the story. And so I'm going to start with that because there are plenty of stories and books and whatever else about people being oppressed and all that sort of stuff. But there are also some things that are pretty great. And you mentioned Bob as an example. If I go into a meeting, typically I would be the only woman there anywhere around the world. As you noted, you know, I've done business in most nooks and cranny of the world. And when you're the only one that's there, you're remembered. You don't have to wonder, like, do they remember who Bob was? Do they remember who Andrew was? It's like they're going to remember who Barbara is because there's only one. The company I work for has been very successfully acquisitive. And um, we're looking at acquisitions all the time. And I can remember... A dinner we were at one night and in a weird stroke of I don't know what solidarity all the men decided to go to the bathroom at the same time but one stayed back was the CFO of the company and this was a publicly traded company and I think he looked at me and thought that little thing I'll just tell her some stuff but she won't really get it and he went on to say that he thought the company was going trade below the stock price and that they had taken out insurance because they were pretty sure that the shareholders would end up suing them. And you know, when you're in the middle of a a deal and you're trying to figure out price to pay and synergies and a bunch of different things, this is like crazy information for him to tell me. And I remember walking outside with my boss at the time after dinner and I said, you're never going to believe what he told me. And my boss said, why do people tell you these things? Like these are not things that people should say out loud, (laughs) but it happens all the time. And I think in some ways it's it's a little bit of underestimation. And so I've been able to get access to information and knowledge and insights that my male counterparts haven't. Now, not for good reason, by the way, you know, it's a little bit of the, you don't really want to be the one that's underestimated that, you know, somehow gets a surprise nugget, but it happens a lot. And so, you know, we can spend some time talking about the things that have been harder, but uh, I just would like to share that some of these things I think have been a little bit easier.
0: That's a terrible story, by the way.
1: Why is it a terrible
0: I story? I mean, the idea that all the men leave the table and so you're left there. So this guy thinks he can just like say a bunch of stuff and like you, you won't understand it or you won't know what to do with it or it doesn't mean anything. You're, you're a, discarded, you know, a discarded piece of, you know, I just, that's a terrible <laughs> story. It's a terrible it's story. Like the fact that he's so indifferent that he could tell you something that, do you think he would have said that to any of the other people at the table?
1: Oh, for sure not. For sure not. This is why I say, you know, I think that I have gained insights on business and people and other things that my male counterparts wouldn't have been able to. And again, not for good
0: reason. What's his name? I'm going to go beat his
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is a little bit like we did the kids in the neighborhood when they rolled you up into a roll of carpet. I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we had to go. that wasn't kids
0: in the neighborhood that was actually the carpet installers for the record uh, i asked nice. them to do it uh-huh yes yeah uh-huh look we're gonna save all these let's make fun of bob stories for the end <laughs> so if, we, if we're running short on time they get cut all uh, right so yeah. i'll be i'll
1: be faster in my responses yes.
0: this is another one of the questions that i got asked and honestly This never would have dawned on me. And that kind of points out why I think it was important to have you on today, was how did you balance being a mother and a professional? And have you had to make sacrifices at various stages of your career because you made the decision
1: to become a mother? You really think that's never dawned on you before? I think anybody who's had children knows that the world is full of sacrifices when you do that. And of course, your work career is is no different. I've got a bit of a theory, which is you don't get to get it all. Nobody does, you know, and so you've got to be realistic in what your priorities are and what you want to do. And one of the things I hear people talk about all the time is making compromises. I don't actually think about it that way. I think about what are your priorities and if you can live consistent with your priorities versus always feel like a compromise because compromise means you get to do something. You don't get to do something. And it matters a little bit. I think about early on when I worked for the consulting firm and I was working like a fool, you know, and these were routinely 80 hour weeks and all those kinds of things. I thought to myself, I need to build up some goodwill so that when I want to work less than this, I already have a reputation that's established. And so I did that. And that way, after Eddie was born, there was a chance to take a little bit lighter path and I didn't have to worry about people saying, well, she's not capable or she's no good or, or what have you. And so I think you've got to have a little dose of reality here, which is you don't get to be an average employee and then take advantage of better assignments, more time off, more leniency, more trust. I mean, you have to earn all of those things. But in that sense, I don't know that it's all that different for men versus women. We talk to a lot of men these days who, when they have kids that are born, they want to take time with them. They want to be able to have the flexibility to do the things through their priorities as well. And it's getting better. You know, I think for the women that were before me, they probably made many more trade-offs and compromises than I've had to do. And I hope for the next generation of women, it gets better as well. I think we, for a long time, accepted some of these trade-offs. We as a society have accepted a bunch of trade-offs for some period of time that really ought not be accepted. And I think a lot of different people could say that. I think working women could say that in many cases, which is, You know, I think back to a lot of the things I did and even counsel that I gave younger women, which was a little bit of just accept it and move on. There's a part of me today that says we shouldn't have to make those compromises. You know, we should be able to go and do our work and be accepted. I remember Warren Buffett, he had a great quote. He said, well, when I was growing up, it was easy because we didn't have to compete with half the field. Right. And then I think about all the things we're trying to do at work in our lives these days and They're hard, you know, and you think about wanting to have a more inventive company, which is what we're trying to do. We're trying to grow forward into a more inventive place. And the only way you can do that is to have different voices at the table. If everybody thinks the same way and acts the same way and makes the same decisions, then you kind of only need one person. Right. You know, you need a multitude of people joining in on that. You know, it kind of comes back to this notion we were talking about before of realizing potential. But for sure, there have been trade-offs and hopefully we'll get better over time. And so for the young women that are in your office trying to climb the ranks and do some phenomenal things, keep focused on doing good work. Make yourself known for being somebody that you can depend on, build trust, work hard, learn some things.
0: It's an interesting thing to hear. And I'm not surprised you said it because a lot of times I hear things that are very counter to what you might say to me when we're talking in our familial capacity. But The next question I was going to lead into was how different is it now than it was 10 or even 20 years ago? But there's kind of a question that needs to kind of be slipped in there. And that is, you know, as you trying to think of a delicate way to put it.
1: I don't know you've ever been delicate.
0: (laughs) There's the public me and then there's the private me. This is the public side. I'm going to get the delicate public. getting the delicate public side. So the question is, I know how much you work in the old days. And I would say, I internalized it myself to say, Barbara, for better or for worse, will never be outworked. You will not outwork her. So to condense a much larger kind of soapbox thing down, if you were not the smartest person in the room, you would outwork everybody. Like you would get to the finish line because you did more. I mean, that was a big part of it. And I know those came at a cost and I still see it now. You know, you're very protective of like, this is the, my time, my family time, this is my work time. Like even getting this call schedule is a bit of a nightmare. And (laughs) you're in a position and have been for a while now. This is what I'm trying to figure out how to ask. That while you're very, very busy, you're also in a position to control your calendar to a certain extent, maybe more so than the data entry person who wants to be the manager of the data entry people. It's like the difference between tasks and goals. Like you don't have a task-oriented job. You have a goal-oriented job. If you have more of a task-oriented job, meaning you're not leadership yet, but you want to head in that direction. But right now you have a job to do and your job is to do that job. When you start introducing the wrinkles of having family and having kids and saying, well, I got to pick up my kid after school and my kids are sick or I got to go to the doctor or whatever it is. That is not always the woman's job in the relationship, but more times than not, that's kind of the assumption. Mm-hmm. I can look at my own relationship. Michelle took on that role like she wanted to go. Kate goes to the dentist, Michelle brings her, Kate goes anywhere, Michelle typically Mm -hmm. did that. I only got brought in when Michelle couldn't do it. Yeah. And I think there's kind of these stereotypical kind of gender roles that are still in place that for better or for worse, maybe there's not a conversation that's had, but it's assumed that because you're a woman, these are your responsibility and therefore additional hurdles are put in your path in a professional capacity because you're not able to dedicate the same amount of attention and resources to doing your task because you're doing so many other tasks. Does that make sense? I don't even know if there's a question in there. I
1: was just about to say, is there a question? What was
0: the point of that story? The the point of the story was how different is it, you know, with, I mean, you're in a different position because you're in the C-suite for the the task oriented people who aren't in a leadership capacity. I'm not sure that the answer of, well, you know, just, you got to do a really good job. Like, don't you think that leadership should take some additional consideration of the people that take responsibility for raising family? Or do they just kind of say, that's your choice. You can't have it all.
1: There's so much there to unpack. Uh, I don't think I could work for a place that didn't support my family needs. Yeah. I to have a boss who would leave work early to go to his kids' baseball game. And when Eddie's basketball team went to the state champions last year, you know, and I said, hey, I'm going to go work for three days in Yakima, Washington. They're like, great good luck to him. And so I think you choose a little bit, a place that will accommodate whatever it is that's important to you. If you're lucky enough to have a choice to do that, you should work with people that are respectful of what you're trying to do. You know, I think part of the issue that you brought up is this notion of traditional gender roles. And that kind of worked when the wife was out doing part-time work and kind of messing around and it was a hobby and not a job. But, you know, you look at the demographics in this country and around the world, and women are taking on big jobs, big responsibilities. And so why is it the case that the roles in the family haven't been better thought out? One of the things that I see a lot, which puzzles me, is a lot of the senior women, successful women that I know, their husbands don't work because it's really hard. It's hard to balance all the needs of the family at home and the needs of work as well. And I think if you're not able to have a good, I don't know, debate and partnership about all those things, then the default position is the mother takes care of all these things. And it's exhausting. I think it tears up marriages in some cases, and I think in other cases it means that people aren't doing what they can do at work. And I hear this all the time, and it drives me a little bit crazy, which is middle-aged men that are now saying, oh, I need to change because I'm looking at my daughter and I want my daughter to have more possibilities than my generation. And I kind of look at them and go, well, that's your wife. <laughs> you, know? you can't act like a, an outsider in some of these conversations. It's a question of how do you set this stuff up? Because the reality is raising kids is hard and working is hard, you know, and having a, a dual working couple trying to raise a kid is super hard. Yeah. I may be pushing a little bit on this next generation, I hope they can do a better job of either picking a mate or (laughs) having conversations up front around how are we going to divide up the work that needs to be done so that you don't end up with somebody feeling like they were short shrifted in whatever they wanted to do. Yeah. Bob, just as a quick story, you reminded me of something a second ago when Eddie was little. I remember I would usually leave the house before he was up. And on the days when I didn't, it was chaotic because he didn't want me to leave. Somehow if he woke up and I wasn't there, he was happy. (laughs) I don't know what to make of that, but that's how it worked. And on those days I was there, he would beg me to stay. And I said to him, do you know why mommy goes to work? And I started to say something about how do you think we take a vacation or whatever. And I realized before the words came out of my mouth that he didn't care about any of that, that he would have told me in a heartbeat, I don't need to go on another vacation again. And I said to him, and he was probably five at the time, I said, mommy goes to work because it makes mommy happy. And he, ever since that day, has never questioned, has never wondered, because what kid doesn't want their mom to be happy? I think it is a little bit of, if I excuse the pun, but it's architecting your life in a way that is consistent with what makes you happy and where your priorities are.
2: You touched on it a little bit in some of your early, earlier comments and we glazed over it and said we might not want to get into it, but what do you think about dealing with unconscious bias and how you've dealt with that? Again, as a female in the workforce, obviously your story earlier about the guy just spilling his guts at the table is an example of that, but even still, how do you think you deal with those kind of things?
1: know, well, unconscious bias is interesting because at its truest form, you don't know it's there. And- Uh, If you haven't done this, you should take the test. Have you guys done that before?
0: I haven't. I have.
1: You should take these tests because they're eye-opening.
0: So what test is it? What is the unconscious bias test?
1: So you answer a lot of questions. At the end, it will help you see where you have biases that you're not aware of. And so I'm going to give you an example. So I think at work, uh, I've been known for decades as being a pretty good mentor to women. I take the unconscious bias test and it says I have an unconscious bias against women in the workforce and old people. It's terrible.
0: Sounds about right. Sounds like me. (laughs) I have a bias against myself.
1: (laughs) Old women. (laughs) But I think it's important because all of a sudden you say, what am I doing that's creating that? So in some ways it's like look in the mirror first, but anybody that says they don't have an unconscious bias is just wrong because we create these shortcuts in our brain all the time to try to help us segment people and understand what the rules of the road are and where to go to get stuff done and all that other stuff. And so we develop these unconscious biases over time. I of course, back to your question, Andrew, do I like to exploit others? Yeah, (laughs) sure do. You know, um, creating a little competitive advantage is not a bad thing, but I think the bigger part is, you know, realizing what you might be doing that inadvertently creates issues for other people. It's very knowable. And in some ways, I and mean, I have to tell you, after I took this test, I'm like totally embarrassed because how can I have an unconscious bias against women? But as I looked into it, it's like I always thought for the women to be great, they would have to do more and they would have to be stronger. And I think I put a higher bar on what it would take to succeed as a woman. And so therefore, I think I was a little bit rougher on some of the women than some of the men. You
0: know what? Can I tell you? I'm not surprised at all to hear that answer from you because- is that right? Yeah, I'm not 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 in the slightest bit because whenever I've brought up some kind of, oh, I rode in a car with this woman, she hijacked me and said, oh, I was a terrible person because I wasn't more proactive and, and all these kind of things. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm super pro woman. <laughs> and I used to always lean back on our conversations and you don't give a lot of about people who are complaining about their specific circumstances. Like if you're the person that says, oh, I didn't get a a bonus this year because I'm a woman, you know, or it wasn't as big because I'm a woman. You don't suffer that very well, for sure. That's true. And so for you to say that you have an unconscious bias against women, I kind of go, makes sense for you to be who you are and where you're at.
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's more around, I want people to be in control of their own destiny. And if it's working harder and doing those kinds of things, you can manage that. As you said, like I'll grind it out more than anybody. If it's how somebody else perceives me or somebody else's unconscious bias that I don't control, I don't like that because I don't like not being in control. And so I'd like to know if I want to get from point A to point B that I can do it, that I can rely on myself to do it and not have to rely on somebody else's enlightenment. <laughs> and so I think that's a little bit of where the wiring comes from.
2: Well, I was going to say that it was just from the fact that you're typically tougher on yourself. And so your unconscious bias was actually against people like you. So therefore it comes from the fact that you're hard on yourself, and that's what pushes you to be great and be successful. because you're hard on yourself. So,
1: I think he just called me an old woman. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> that is
0: totally what he just did. Uh, oh, I, well. That
1: was that was like smooth. Joke, you see, right? he, uh, eased, he eased into that, and then no, I that's not
2: what I'm saying. But that, it, that maybe it was not. <laughs> but that maybe the just the female part. But yeah, it seems like to me like, it wouldn't be bad to be biased against yourself in a way. Those people like you. Because it's really, you're being harder on yourself. I mean, it makes sense. And that's where that comes from. It's just, that's your outlook on it because that's how you're
1: built. Well, you're being generous there. I think a part that's happened over time is that I've got enough confidence now to hold some of my male colleagues more accountable for better behavior. And, you know, when I didn't have the confidence to do that or the stature to do that, then the game play was always, the woman has to do more or has to work harder or has to be better or has to do whatever. Versus now having conversations to call out, hey, if, if that were a guy, would you be saying the same thing? We have these debates and things like performance appraisals all the time, where the woman will be described in a way that's aggressive, and the male will be described as assertive. Would you rather be aggressive or assertive? Would you rather be assertive? You know, and it could be the same behavior in different words. And right. so, even the confidence to say, would you describe the same behaviors in a male? That way? A lot of times, people go, "Oh my God, no!" (laughs) Like I need to rethink
0: this. Well, I think that Andrew, you and I should both take the unconscious bias test and post our results in this episode.
1: Well, that's a brilliant. I'm willing to do it.
0: I'm willing to, you know, I mean, I'm I want to better myself. I want to be able to hold myself up as better than everybody else. This is one way to do it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I was gonna say that. We'll see how the results go. But I mean, I've done a lot of that training with AIA and you know that organization. We've done a lot of unconscious bias trainings. They're on our schedule. So I mean, I understand some of it. We can
0: find a test and we can take one. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. So Barb, what advice would you give to the
1: next generation of female leaders? The big generation, I hope. You know, I think a big part of this is know what you want and what's important to you. And I don't say that in a la la kind of a way, but you're gonna run across these things all the time where There are certain trade-offs, and if you come back and say none of us get it all, then knowing what's more important to you and being confident with the choices that you're going to make is is important. I think you've got to have the confidence to stand up for yourself if you think there's more than you can do. I've always had this philosophy about my career, which is I could never define it, and it was funny as I was listening on the intro describe the random things that I've done over time, like nobody has that job description. Nobody has that job path, but I've always kind of thought if there's interesting work to do that I think I can add value and I can learn how I'm going to do it. And that's why I've ended up doing so many different random things. And so I think having a little bit of flexibility to know where good opportunities are going to be and where there are people you can learn from and where you can start to you know, have building blocks that allow you to do some other things, not being so rigid in what that looks like. Also important, having somebody that will give you feedback take the old two by four and whack you over the head and say, why are you doing it that way? (laughs) I've had some great mentors who have done that to me and it's been invaluable. Yeah,
0: for sure. There's one thing that you said there that I think is kind of, I just want to make sure that I understand this correctly. Part of what you said, seemed like a large part of it, had to do with there needs to be a shift in how people think and what you're kind of stating or advocating, or I don't know, maybe you're just saying this is what it is. There needs to be a change in the individual's thinking not a shift in the corporate thinking. Like you're not saying companies need to be even more accommodating towards women so they can do these things. It's women need to understand that there's decisions that need to be made for you to find and set your own priorities and what's important to you.
1: Well, it's interesting to hear you say it that way because men do this all the time and nobody's saying, oh my God, like a man needs to find a place that reinforces what he wants to do. I hope that corporations also get better at yeah, time. for, for sure. sure. Part of this comes back to the what can you control. You can control where you work and finding a set of people that are like-minded that you think create the environment that you want to work in. You can control how hard you work. You can control what assignments you take on or what assignments you pass, pass on. I think it's that. And it's a bit of a generational thing because I think the people that are able to push the corporation to change are people in my generation because I'm a protected class, (laughs) you know, as an old chip, I can do things that are less risky for me personally than a young person can. And you don't get to come out of college and try to change the way the Fortune 500 operate because you don't have the credibility to do that. And you'll come across as nonsense in those conversations. I think it's incumbent on those of us who have been around for a while who've seen different things to be able to drive some of these changes and make sure that it's a part of the conversation and... You know, try to make it better. I know that I
0: asked kind of an aggressive question, but one of the things that as you were talking that I thought I needed to say, maybe you don't want to talk about it, or maybe it's just like, I don't know, but it sounds like, hey, I just worked hard and I did what I was supposed to do, and all these magical things have happened to me. That's Mm -hmm. not true because there have been many, many times in the last 25 years where you were, I still remember, I wish I could remember the exact cities. I was like, Hey, Barb, what's going on? What are you doing? You're like, well, I'm driving to the airport. I got to fly to London. And then after that, I'm going to somewhere in China for a meeting. I'm going to be there for an hour and then get right back on a plane. Then I got to go to South America or Africa. or (laughs) And so like over the course of like four days, you're going to hit like five countries. So if people don't know that, which they don't, because we haven't said it until I just said it right now, there were chunks of your life when Eddie was alive where you traveled a lot and it was hard. And I know it was hard on you. I know you didn't like it. And I still remember even when you took your position, there was a conversation that you and I had about, Hey, I feel like I can have a little bit more control over my travel schedule. Cause it used to be, and this is before I think you went over to Fluke, You were traveling like three days a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like half of every week you were gone somewhere. And one of the things that you said, well, the good news is about this, and this is when you took on the president position, you're like, yeah. now I can bunch stuff together. So rather than being kind of a slow drain of terrible, I can make it really bad for like three or four to five days and then not have it bad for two weeks or something.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: And it kind of speaks to the idea that it's still not easy and it's still terrible and it still requires a great deal of sacrifice. But at some point you're able to say, this is how I can make it better and more palatable so that I can get a better balance of what I need versus what I want.
1: Yeah, that's all true. But there's another part of the story, which is, and the reason I told you the story of, you know, adding, asking me why I worked is I always loved going around the world and seeing new businesses and meeting new people and seeing new cultures. So it's not like every second I was doing that, it was drudgery and I didn't want to do it. It's funny with COVID here, I haven't traveled since April, this is the longest I have been grounded. And it's weird. And I miss it, <laughs> you know. Again, I think part of this is kind of figuring out what are you trying to do and what makes you happy and how do you knit everything together in a way that makes sense. Now, I never got to the point, obviously, where I thought I was being a crummy mom or I wouldn't have done it, right? right. And so you kind of get into that. And there are certainly times where I didn't travel because I thought it was needed at home. And there are times when, that creates some amount of stress because I think the worst is when you think, gosh, work thinks I'm doing a crappy job. I feel like I'm being a crappy mom and I feel like I'm being a crappy spouse. Like nobody's happy and I'm just tired <laughs> you know, because I'm working so hard trying to keep all the pieces together. And, and certainly, that's a familiar feeling. It has, of course, gotten better over the years as I've gotten more senior and I'm in a little bit more control over what I do versus, say, your example of the what was it, the data entry clerk? Right. Yeah. You know, where there's not as much flexibility there for sure. Yeah.
2: So you've touched on it a few times throughout our conversation today, but what what are your thoughts on mentorship? I mean, I know we've brought up getting whacked with a two by four to help you out, but. Talk a little bit about what your thoughts on mentorship, because we've had discussions on the show before about mentorship. So talk about how you think that works and cultivating leaders. Yeah. The importance of it.
1: You know, what's, what's interesting is I've never seen a formal mentor program work. And we've tried a bunch of things where we assign incoming people to somebody and they're supposed to be great chemistry and they're supposed to work and it's supposed to be great. And they almost never do because it's a very personal relationship and in order to get enough out of a mentor, you've got to be pretty vulnerable, which means there's got to be some fair amount of trust, and you don't have that necessarily on day one with somebody you're assigned to. You know I think the thing of it is, I've got this great concept of building your own personal board of directors, and you ought to think about what do you need. There are people on my board that don't even know they're on my board, which is good because I don't compensate them. <laughs> I don't give them anything.
0: Tell um, me about it.:
1: You know. <laughs> I know <ain't> you. Oh, no. <laughs> it's
0: mean burn. You're so mean. Burn.
1: But you know, part of it is you think about there are people that I have on that board that I call up just when I know I need a pep talk. And there are people that I know that are on the board that will give me really sage advice around technical knowledge associated with the work I have to do. And people that I know that will be really great on career planning or what have you. But I think that concept is much more powerful than the formalized mentor program because I've always found that you gotta learn from a lot of different people and no one person has it all. And if you can kind of figure out, here are the pieces I need in the recipe and therefore here's who I need to get sage advice from, it becomes a whole lot easier and very meaningful. I've had the good fortune throughout my career to have people around me that I could go to in that way. And I think part of it is, If you show an interest and an openness to feedback, you can't get defensive and all those kinds of things, then people love helping out. People love helping out if someone will take and listen to advice and try to get better. And there's a certain amount of pride in that. And, you know, I've got people that reach out to me on occasion. They say, will you be my mentor? I was asked the question, what does that mean? What are you looking for? In a lot of cases, it's check the box on a development plan. And I don't have a lot of interest in that. But what's interesting is they die out anyway, because you always say, yeah, great. you Give me a call when there's something you need to talk about. They never call. Versus the ones that say, hey, I was in this meeting the other day, and I think it was no good, and here's how it went down. Can you help me think about what I might do next time? Or, hey, I'm thinking about these different career opportunities. Can you help me think about the pluses and minuses of each or whatever. And then those develop nicely over time. And I think having people that you can bounce ideas off of people that will be brutally honest with you, people that aren't worried about hurting your feelings is really important because the reality is whatever you're trying to develop, everybody else sees it and they talk about it. Just a question of if you're let in on the conversation or not. Yeah. I would imagine in an architecture firm, you've got the partners there. And at some point in time, they have meetings around who they're going to promote and why, and you kind of want to know what they're looking for. You want to know how they're sizing you up. You want to know if there are deficiencies you can address. And so you need somebody that can shoot it to you straight.
2: What I like about your personal board of directors is that just like any other board of directors, it can change over time. And as you evolve in your career, you can reassess the board and put new people on it as you move through your career. I would think that for sure it helps yeah.
1: for sure. You can change it, but you always need your cheerleaders, by the way, just people that will sing your praises no matter what. And there are times when you think I've had a bad day. I'm no good at what I'm doing. And those, are, you always need those people on your board.
2: Yeah. I probably don't have any of those. I'm like, I don't think I have those either. My mom, that's probably about the only person that would be a cheerleader. For your me. mom
1: can be on your board. You know, sure. She everybody can. else is like, mm.
0: <laughs> but not so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We've spent a lot of
0: time. Talking, and I know that we're coming up on the end of our scheduled time together. So should we let Andrew ask some embarrassing questions about me and wh- how amazing it was? <laughs> Stuart,
1: this is going to be my favorite part of the whole oh, time. I'm awesome. dying to
0: know. Because you do realize that, well, A, I can edit the audio. And B, I can come back and interject my own Barb stories as well. Just putting that out there, just letting mm-hmm. you know
2: uh don't worry i won't let him do it
1: (laughs) (laughs) we've got integrity here we're gonna do it right
2: that's right so i won't even ask about the nickname but we do need a good bob as a kid story maybe of when he was a big idiot the dumbest thing you can remember bob doing as a kid besides getting rolled up in a carpet apparently
0: oh which i asked for by the
1: way that he he asked for i I mean that's yeah
0: yeah, i I thought it'd be (laughs) i thought it'd be fun
1: now, my favorite, my favorite Bob story, my dad had this desire for forever and a day to get back to driving a Corvette, so he had a Corvette in his youth, and he was really dying to do this, and so, I don't know, midlife crisis or whatever, he ends up with this sweet red Corvette, and of course, it was a bit hands-off for us, because we were teenage drivers, and we shared a Ford Pinto, so it yeah. was quite a different experience. We literally experience. had a
2: Ford Pinto. Sweetness.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty good reputation builder.
2: Was it brown or green? No, it's white.
0: It was white.
1: Well, it was white until it caught on fire, which really <laughs> happened. And then it was white with the burn. It had a
0: black <laughs> dot in the center. But that was when you were, you were in college. I was. You and Renee brought that down to UT and it caught on fire outside the band hall, I think. That's true. And then it just came back and sat in our driveway. But so not only did my parents buy my dad, a ford pinto wagon he bought a white one it might as well have like bars on the side to make it generic
1: hey but it wasn't car. like the woody one that would be worse i don't know anyway but anyway my brother of course like all young boys wants to drive the sports car and so he's at our house and my mother comes to tell him good night and he says good night and said and done well he's figured that she's gone to sleep and he's going to take the corvette out (laughs) so it has a bit of a noise you know a rumbling start
2: sure yeah
1: pushes the car out of the garage to the alley pushes it halfway down the alley before he starts it so that nobody can hear the rumble of it but that's not even the good part of the story
0: I'm not stupid.
1: My mother decides she can't sleep, and so she'll go hang out with my brother to watch whatever movie he was supposedly watching. She goes into the family room where Bob's supposed to be, and there's no Bob. She opens up the garage <laughs> door, and not only is there no Bob, but there's no Corvette. So, like, he's totally ratted out, despite his greatest attempts not to give himself away. But you know what happened to him? What's that? Nothing.
2: <laughs> Nothing.
1: So she knows that he's stolen my dad's car and not a thing happens. And that was the story of my brother's life. No,
0: that's a yeah, terrible that's... story, by the way.
1: He was a good manipulator. No, that, that is was...
2: spoken like a true older sibling. My sister would say the same thing about me, about, <laughs> oh, I got away with everything because, know. you know, cause you were the baby. Well, no,
1: ask him, no, ask him. Did you get away with everything? See what he Where my
0: you? mom was concerned? A hundred percent.
1: Yeah, ah, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Everybody knows this. And in my family, we talk about this all the time. We go, Well, you know, you were mom's favorite. And everybody goes, Yeah, everybody knows for Bob. Everybody knows it's that. It's true. It's even, we don't even try to pretend that it wasn't a thing.
0: Actually, there's one other story, and I'll tell this one real quick because some of these will get cut out. <laughs> you don't agree with this. And, and the only reason I'm saying he's this he's on a roll. No, 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 this has to do with you again. And I've told this story on the podcast before and on the website before and it had to do with after my freshman year in architect school where I wasn't doing very good and mom and dad kind of ran a tight ship and I got to college and I had freedom for the first time ever I kind of went nuts I kind of was having a good time and I was not making good grades and you you deny this you pulled me aside one day and you're like if you don't get your act together mom and dad are going to pull you out of school
1: (laughs) That do
0: a faker. I know. And what, <laughs> so here's the thing that's interesting about this. I asked my dad about, it and he's like, I never said that. Like, I never had that conversation. And of course, Barbara's like, I never said that to you. Which, of course, like, don't you think that's something that I would remember? <laughs> like, you're going to get pulled out of school if you don't get your act together. Barbara did that. And the way I've kind of internalized it since is, it was just another way of her saying, you need to figure things out or things are not going to go the way they need to go. That was nice. You're always looking.
1: See, that, was, that was my two by four. That was, it was yeah, tough right. luck. Yeah, it
0: was. Yeah. We're going to get into the hypothetical, which Barb has agreed to, to participate in. And so we had a bunch of different ones we were going to throw out at you. We kind of just settled on this one. So you ready? You understand how this works? You need me explain the rules? I do. Okay.
1: No, I'm good. All right,
0: so here it is. Here's the hypothetical question. If you could have any one skill that actually exists in the world, which means teleportation is out, what would that skill be? Like, so for example, not only does it have to be a skill that really exists, like you can't have supernatural powers, it's you saying you want to be as good as something as some person who has existed. Like I want to paint as good as Pablo Picasso. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean that you have complete mastery over painting and can paint anything and everything that's ever existed. You can just paint like Pablo Picasso painted. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay, so as the guest of honor, what is your skill set that you want?
1: Now, I suppose it's a little bit out of bounds for me to say, I wish I could be as great of an architect as Bob Borson. Oh,
0: that's am- a terrible waste of that okay. skill.
1: Okay, <laughs> or how about if I said, I wish I had a sense of humor like Bob Borson? I say that. No, there's funnier people than me. All right. I wish I could smoke brisket like Bob Warson. You're bad at this game. You know, that's true. <laughs> I'm thinking you don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> do you understand it? No, I'm. Uh, everybody should just know that I'm extraordinarily proud of my little brother. I think he's awesome. And so, there are characteristics I'd like to do. But if you say that you're out of bounds, I'm out of bounds.
2: That's such pandering. Can't do that. I know. Totally. I'm pandering.
1: I need something back out of him. You know, the the thing that I would like to do is I'd like to be like Abraham Lincoln. And in particular, one of the things I'm trying to learn how to do is, uh, and this is a kind of a worky leadership related thing, is build higher performing teams that can be more innovative. And part of it is for the businesses that I'm looking after today, there's some, go back to your thing about solving the world's biggest problems. Like there's some big problems that we got to get after solving. And so what I would like to do is be able to see like Lincoln did when he put his team of rivals together for his cabinet, which is probably the easier point. So he puts his cabinet together with all kinds of people that he hated and had dissenting voices and were pains in the neck and all that sort of stuff. But more importantly, how do you manage a group of people that are like that? Yeah. Cause the truth of the matter is it's far easier to manage people that think like you, <laughs> you know? Sure but you don't get as much new thinking out of it and you don't grow your own perspectives out of it. And, you know, there are people that you can work with and you go, Oh my God, like I don't even understand what they just said. It's so out there. But if you've got the patience, which by the way, don't often have a lot of to be able to learn from different people. So I say it would be a cabinet maker, Well, I'd like to be a carpenter too, but that's not the kind I'm talking about.
0: I think it's interesting that you point out to say, oh, like you want to build your cabinet of all these people with dissenting voices and don't think like you are for all the right reasons. But it also suggests that you as a thinker don't have an agenda because obviously we can take our current government leader and say, he wants to put people in place that will basically pave the road for him to do exactly what he already wants to do. Right? He doesn't want to hear what other people have to say about how to do things. He's like, this is what it needs to be. You guys are just the the tip of the arrow that parts the way for me to run my agenda through, which is not what Lincoln did by putting people that dissented and didn't agree with his point of view. It made everything that he wanted to accomplish harder.
1: Well, this is why I say building it probably isn't that hard because you know the people out there that think differently from you, but managing through it and having the patience to really listen and absorb is hard because it's exhausting. Yeah. It's not efficient. But how do you learn otherwise?
0: Well, I guess that's my point. Even given the opportunity to choose something that is a bit of a shortcut, or saying snap of fingers, you have the ability to do X (laughs) without having to put in the time or effort to actually learn how to do that thing. Even in your answer, you chose something that inherently makes your path harder.
1: I love to learn new things. Curiosity for new things, for sure.
0: Still something you have to learn. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Like, yeah. Your process
2: is about learning.
0: Yes. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's an acceptable answer, I suppose.
2: Better than the first three. I know.
0: God. First three were, (laughs) were ridiculous. Okay, Andrew. So what about you?
2: And I don't really know how to put it together, but I guess I would like to understand, and I don't know if it's like quantum physics or the universe, like Stephen Hawking, oh. right? Like I would like to have that knowledge of everything that's out there and how it all relates to one another. I mean, I can read the books and stuff, but I think there's still a, another level of understanding that, that he kind of has. So I think that would be the skill that I would like to put in my brain. Like if I could just snap my fingers and do it.
1: Well, if you could do that, you could do a lot of things because
2: that. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, that's kind of my, the idea behind it, but in reality, it's the biggest brain I could probably think of. That's the equivalent of
0: wishing for more wishes. (laughs) (laughs) No, I stayed within the rules. You said I wanted to do something like somebody. So I stayed in the rules. His skill set is superior analytical thinking. Is that the skill set?
2: I guess maybe. Or it's a higher level of knowledge about how the world goes together, but yeah.
1: I had the chance to see him. He came out to the Pacific Science Center here in Seattle to give a talk. And, you know, you think you're a reasonably intelligent person who's well-read or whatever. I couldn't understand 80% of what he said. Most of us, we went half of him and we'd still be better.
2: Yeah, right, right. I know. It'd be hard. So, okay, Bob, what do you got here? What's your
0: skill? This question was both really easy and impossibly difficult for me to answer. Because I knew the answer would be to play a particular musical instrument. Very rarely do I look at another architect's work and go, oh, I wish I could design like them. Or some athlete and go, I wish I could shoot the ball like them or throw the football. That stuff, I never think about. But I bet it's almost daily. I hear something and I go, man, I wish I could play the guitar like that person. I wish that I could. Play the piano like that person. And it's not because I have this desire to be on a stage performing. I mean, I would be content sitting in the front room of my house and sitting down at the piano and being able to to play it, like play it well. So if it was like, I was trying to think, okay, well, what instrument's going to be? Well, then my head explodes because that answer changes constantly.
2: <laughs> right? So I go. Based on the music you're listening on that yeah, week. Yeah, it's uh, like whatever I'm day.
0: listening to, I go that, yeah. I want that, I want to be able to do that. And so there's always some kind of evolution to it, but it's, I mean, it's to be drums. It's constant. I, go, I want to play the drums. Like John Bonham. If I was going to play drums, he'd be the guy. Or I go John Mayer. I'd love to be able to play the guitar like John Mayer. Cause that guy can seemingly do just about anything he wants. So I find it interesting that, that whenever that does, not this question, but just when I hear something that I covet, probably almost 100% of the time it's someone else's ability to play an instrument.
1: It's not like the diggery doo or one of those?
0: No. I can fake a pretty good diggery do. I'm pretty sure I could just pick one of those up and rock it right now. I think I got that ability. <laughs> but I can't do the other
1: thing. I don't know. The field's narrow.
0: I can rock a rain stick or a tambourine. Yeah. I can do those. A triangle?
1: <laughs> got it. <Killer. laughs>
0: well, you know, you were asking if I still play or anything. And occasionally I'll sit down at the piano and I'll play arpeggios or I'll play my scales or I'll play chords or something just to kind of, still have like some kind of toe in that pool i still have my tenor saxophone we have clarinet i mean i still got all these instruments in the house the problem is is whenever i pull them out it's in my brain i still am at that peak when i was like in college and i was in the jazz band and we were playing in the bars and i was like man that's how i think i am and then i put it in my mouth and i blow oh
1: <laughs> it's disappointing
0: no it's, it's like oh it's done it's just so depressing But yeah, I think about that a lot. So I didn't really answer the question, but. In your own vague way. I like to leave it open for interpretation. So I'd just like to say thank you for joining us today and talking through your thoughts and ideas on leadership. We appreciate the time. Of course, it's my pleasure. I think we've reached a point where I think I'm going to call this a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 54 leadership i'd like to thank our guest barbara hewlett for joining us today we would also like to thank our media partner bd and c for their gracious support of this podcast
2: if you like today's episode please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get tantalizingly fresh new episodes automatically downloaded
0: every two weeks while you're there Please go on whatever podcast listening app you use and leave us a five star, My Sister's Cooler Than Yours rating.
2: Be sure to visit the original Life of an show
0: notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Be sure to stick around to the very end. And if we have any outtakes from today's episode, we'll be sure to include them at the end. Thanks so much for tuning in.
2: Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.
0: Tell them to shut up. They're making so much noise. Oh, my God.
1: I didn't even yeah. hear them. Oh my God! It's like mixing headphones. cups
0: and pots and pans. You're. It's gonna be on, on, on all your audio. Well, I don't hear it now. <laughs> I took it on from here. Andrew, back me up on that,
1: right? It's, it's,
2: yeah. No. No. Sounds like a they, soup kitchen. They were kitchen playing is like, like a, Yeah, it was a. <laughs> a an egg pot <laughs> band. They were playing back there.
1: It's just a pity because I was on a roll and now I, I know. I was
0: remember. like, I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna have to cut all this audio anyway because all I hear are pots and pans slamming. if you could have any one skill that actually exists in the world so for andrew that means teleportation is out of the question means what teleportation is that teleportation i know teleportion did i say teleportion yeah i don't know what you said all right whatever uh, i'll start it
2: again all right i'm just hoping that at some point we can have an off an offline conversation i can hear more bob stories the really good ones the ones that aren't oh. suitable that are told
0: by bob <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: that's like the other thing yeah. the
1: girl running down the stairs and out the back door like that story
0: oh that's like that sounds so like it's a the good front one. Door.
1: Oh, she ran out the front door, the front door. oh because my dad was in the back door no he was
0: looking out the family room window nice so i told her to <laughs> go out the front door and immediately turn left and stay tight to the,
1: to the front of the house <laughs>
0: And we're all like, I don't to tell you, it wasn't us. And so he's, he made us stand at the foot of his bed while he took a nap.
1: For like two hours we had to stand it was, I don't know if it was two hours. but It was a while. It was a long time. And you were over there practicing your golf swing. <laughs> while Renee and I were standing there trying to figure it
0: out. Yeah, they're like, oh my God, we're going to get a beating. And I got so many beatings, it was like non-issue. So, <laughs> so I'm over there like practicing my fake golf swing while my dad's trying to nap. It's Barbara Renee over there getting ready for the beating that was assuredly to come that's funny very funny